There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to North Carolina-based writer Philip Lewis about his debut novel, The Barrowfields. Philip Lewis is a writer living in Charlotte, North Carolina. He worked in a courtroom as a lawyer for around nine years and wrote The Barrowfields, his debut novel, across five years while continuing to work as a lawyer. And it's The Barrowfields that we're going to be talking about today. Philip, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. So describe to me The Barrowfields. The book is, it's a deeply American saga. It's set primarily in the high mountains of North Carolina in a small town that I have um, created called Old Buckram. And it's also set in the Piedmont of North Carolina and in the low country of South Carolina. And in this, in this small insular town in the mountains of North Carolina, there's a young boy named Henry who grows up in a house where there are no books. And he quickly comes to find out, though, that he, despite this circumstance, that he loves books and he loves to read. And he loves the written word, and he he finds himself going to the library all the time. And in fact, at one point, he, he stays in there so long as to get locked in the library overnight. And uh, his mother just doesn't understand what to do with his exceptional literacy. But uh, at some point, he does escape the gravity of old Buckram, and he goes away, and he goes off to college, and he begins a uh, a, a career writing. And he, he believes, like so many writers do, I think, that there there's something special in him. There's a way that he views the world which is special and it's, and it's unique. And he has this voice that he wants to find and he begins searching for this voice. And he writes some short stories and to some acclaim. But it's, it's then that his mother becomes sick and he has to return to Old Buckram, to this small town. And he goes back there and he, he's viewed as an outsider and he, he's sort of out of place and out of time there. And I think some of that is self-imposed. But here he installs his young family. He has a wife at this point and a young son also named Henry. And he installs them in this decaying Gothic mansion on the side of a mountain, inside of which there's a library of 10,000 books. And when he first finds this house, he walks in and he says, you know, oh, here, here I can write. And so his son, uh, Henry, is there, and then they have another daughter named Trinity, 
And um, the story is told, all this story is told by Henry's son, who grows up in the shadow of his father's writing desk. And his entire life is informed by literature. I mean, you can imagine this young man growing up in this in this dark, this bleak mansion, um, and, and every, where every word comes out of his uh, that comes out of his father's mouth has something to do with literature. And it's it's a reference to T. S. Eliot or or Keats or Wordsworth or, or you name it. And that his his entire worldview is is described uh, in terms of um, this sort of literary heritage. Well, tragedy strikes the family, as it, as it does in these sorts of stories. And the father abandons the family and leaves them in this mansion. So the story, the son, uh, our, our faithful narrator, um, he is going to, years later, tell you uh, what happened. He's going to unspool this narrative. It's shrouded in mystery. So tell me about old Buckram. So as you mentioned, it's, it's a fictional creation, but you did grow up yourself in a um, North Carolina mountains in, I guess, a similar town. And we'll talk about your own growing up in a little bit more detail a bit later, but tell us about what old Buckram is like, the fictional version. So, well, let, let me just start by saying that um, the town that I grew up in, which was called West Jefferson, is, I think, objectively uh, a, a beautiful town in the mountains of North Carolina. And it is it was the kind of place that I think if I were to describe it to you, you would say... You would say it's the kind of place where you'd like to visit. You know, the, the weather is not ideal, but it's wonderful in the summers. <laughs> and they do get a bit of snow and that sort of thing. But the people are kind and they're, and they're generous and everybody knows everybody else. And it's just generally a sort of a lovely place to be. I've actually, I've been to Asheville, which is um, a wonderful place to visit. Oh, Asheville is absolutely incredible. And it's not, it's not that dissimilar from Asheville, except it's just, it's just much smaller. Um, it's probably two hours to the northeast of uh, of Asheville, but uh, w- with old Buckram, what I wanted to do was I-, I wanted to sort of capture more of the darkness that you sometimes find in in small mountain towns. and And the idea was for me, you know, growing up there, I think it's a great place probably to raise children, but it may not be a great place to grow up as a child because at least in the years when I was there, there wasn't much culture. There there weren't many uh, activities. You know, like here I live in Charlotte now, and I can you know the you can go see a play anytime you want. You can go to you know the theater, the orchestra, whatever the case may be. But it really wasn't like that when I grew up. And I, I think that I felt maybe more than some other people the sort of the insular or the enclosed nature of it. And so I wanted to create a town that would that when described, um, the reader would be able to feel those aspects of the closeness and. Um, sort of the, the bleak aspect and the darkness of it, but also also sort of the wit and the humor, too, that goes with folks that, that live in the mountains. And I, and I don't know, you, you may have picked up on some of this while you were out there, but the folks that live in the mountains are incredible storytellers. And almost everyone is. And you can meet someone on the street, and before they say anything else to you, they'll set in on some kind of story or an anecdote. And all of it's extraordinarily clever. And so, and there's a tremendous amount of nuance and complexity to the people who live there. And one thing I found is that so many stories that people write about the North Carolina mountains, they make the people who live there caricatures. And they sort of describe us all as folks with maybe a, a lower, in, lower uh, intellect, and, and, and they ascribe to us a, <laughs> an, an accent or a dialect that... Um, 
sort of suggests limited education and that sort of thing. And, and really nothing could be further from the truth. And if you actually go and you sit down and talk to people who live in this area, you'll find how incredibly vibrant and intelligent that they are and how the, and they do tell you these stories that, that are so fascinating and so interesting. And so in order to really adequately portray an authentic picture of what life is like there, you know, you you really have to round it out and include all these details, and that's what I've tried to do with uh, my old Buckram. And that's obviously a you know an oral storytelling technique, but of course you've also mentioned the fact that you know Henry's mother in the novel is suspicious of of books. Where does that come from? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that might have been, I think that might might play a little bit into the stereotype that I that I just mentioned. You know, which is that the folks in that area are suspicious of learning, and and I think I mean there is some of that. There's no question about it. If you get you know far enough up into the mountains, you will find folks who place a lower value on literacy than perhaps other people might. So it definitely does exist, and it is a phenomenon. But it, it really, you know, the idea was to you know to place this young man in a situation where his his love affair with literature would be brought out in the clearest way possible. I wanted to talk about the house as described as the vulture house in the book. And again, as you've described, it's like a, you know, a, a classic Gothic house from fiction. Um, the house itself has a tragic past. And you describe everything in this book is described so vividly and, and so completely. But tell us something about this amazing house. The house is, as I say, it's a decaying mansion. It's it, it's it's set up on the top of a uh, on the top of a hill, there in the mountains, and it is it sort of sits in a place where, due to the the way that the ridges of the mountain uh, are, it's it's sort of perpetually in shadow, and it has an eerie past. There there's some things that that I describe in the book. Something awful happened in this house. Um, no one knows exactly what, and it's the uh, it's the subject of much discussion in the town, and, and everybody has a different idea about what they think happened there, and that's one of the reasons why it's sitting there vacant, and and it's something that that Henry the father, when he returns to Old Buckram, that he can come along and 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 move in, move his family in, and it looks like a kind of house that would be maybe designed floor to ceiling by Edgar Allan Poe, and I think someone has suggested that before. And, uh, and I, I read a lot of Poe, and I, and I like his imagery. And, you know, when I first started writing the book, I hadn't described the house in that way. I, it, it took several iterations, but in order to make it the, to give it the dark quality that I wanted, it eventually became this, this uh, mansion of iron and glass with all... Um, irregular angles and that sort of thing and it has it was so much fun to to write about it uh, there all the rooms have so much character and as I mentioned before in the middle of the house sort of in the in the heart of the dwelling there's this extraordinary library in the middle of the library is an enormous aperture through which you can see down into the floor below and another one in the ceiling where you can see all the way up to the roof and it's in the corner of this library where Henry the father has his writing desk. And that's where he sits day in and day out and attempts to pin his magnum opus while his son sits there on the floor with him, literally in the shadow of his father's writing desk and, and absorbs this uh, literary character that's going to define him. 
And the title of the book, The Barrow Fields, refers to the surroundings of this house, which are these sort of rocky fields where nothing will grow. Tell us about that. Is that a, is that a real thing? No, that's not a real thing. The, uh, th- there is a place um, out in the western part of the state, uh, western part of North Carolina, southwest of Asheville, and it's on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And th- that's sort of where the inspiration came from. It's, it's just sort of a... It's sort of a field, and it's an overlook on the Blue Ridge Parkway, and you drive up there, and there's a sign, and it says something like, for some reason, nothing will grow on this land. <laughs> and it look, just sort of looks um, sort of drab and drear and a little bit depressing, and it's not honestly much to behold, but I was driving out there one day, and I read the sign, and it occurred to me that that would make such an extraordinary setting in a book. And the way I describe it in the book is this place that's sort of between the vulture house and this small town um, which is down in the valley and it is a place where nothing will grow and there are these there are stumps that the locals think maybe are they're all covered with this creeping gray moss and 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 uh all the some of the locals think that they're grave markers they're sort of headstones that have been there for thousands of years and uh and other folks think that there was something called a wind blow um, which is apparently a thing that you sometimes see in, in mountain lore. A wind blow came up over, over the hills and, and blew away all the nutrients in the soil um, and basically just rendered the land sterile so that nothing but this creeping gray moss would ever grow there. And I just wanted to say something about some of the names in the novel. You mentioned Threlody, the, the daughter, and that's a you know a ballad, a sort of keening lament. And Henry Junior's um, love interest in the book is called Story. And you've mentioned this this idea of the sort of you know the oral storytelling techniques. So tell me about some of these names. Well, so everything in the book I think is done sort of that way. Uh, almost everything, al- almost all the names uh, and the place names, they have some extrinsic significance that you know you don't have to know these things in order for the story to have meaning, but um, if you do, it, it will it will add some meaning, and some of them some of them are serious, and some of them are some of them are jokes, which you know I I enjoy very much finding things like that, in little e- Easter eggs, literary Easter eggs is what I call them, uh, in books that, that other people have written, and so it goes from this, you start with the title, uh, or, or not the title, but the, um, the 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 primary setting for the book, Old Buckram, and of course Buckram is a type of uh, it's like a linen or a cotton that you stiffen with glue and you make. Uh, book covers out of it, and so my idea was to have this have this story take place within Old Buckram, which is to say within the covers of an old book, and, and it kind of goes from there. Story, of course, is that's a rather obvious one, but then you have characters like there's there's an old uh, mountain preacher named Harold Specks, um, who is he's this fellow who he he just condemns everyone to hell with all this uh, hellfire and brimstone and and he has a rather unacademic um, conception of the Holy Scripture, you could say. And his name comes from Heruspex, of course, which is, you know, was a species of um, priest that used to tell futures and that sort of thing by looking at the entrails of animals. You know, and, and, and essentially, and it became, I think Mencken expanded the term to something more broad, you know, sort of any any charlatan of that, that, sort, of, that sort of thing. And so... Um, there's another character named Sue Brett who <laughs> makes a who gets one sentence in the book 
um, just sort of a comedic uh, a reference, and of course, um, you know that that goes with the term soubrette. And so, it, there, it just there's layer upon layer of, of these things. Some of them are more serious than others, like Trinity, of course. I think I think the, the sort of the hidden heart of the book is Trinity and and her relationship with her brother and how they come to terms with the departure of her father. And her name, I think, is, is, uh, is apt in this particular story. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Philip Lewis and we're talking about his debut novel, The Barrow Fields. And Philip, I read a article that was published in Granta that you wrote where you described the process of writing this book and described the book as an emotional autobiography. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that for me, I wasn't interested in, in telling any aspect of the true facts of my own life or the the, the real experiences that I've had. And part of that was because, and I think that's a very difficult thing for a writer to do. It causes you to be honest with yourself in a way that's, that's difficult. And, and, and I think also, I'm not sure that it would have been, would have been particularly interesting. At least it would not have been interesting to me uh, in order you know, to do something like that. And, and what, I, what I really wanted to, con- to do with this book was to take out and examine certain certain emotional experiences that I had had and deal with them somehow 
through the written word. And I think I figured this out as the process went along. But, you know, I, I had certain experiences whenever I was in high school, whenever I was a young man, experiences with my father that I came away from with sort of this weight of emotion that I wanted to find some way to articulate. And in order to do that, I created this town, this old Buckram town and these characters and this completely different landscape. And using these pieces, using these these characters in this new place, I tried to paint on this canvas the emotions that I had experienced in other places and in other times. And in doing so, I was able to hold these things up to the light, as it were, and come to better understand them. I mean, if, if, I'm, trying to, if I'm trying to write a scene where I'm capturing maybe a feeling of loss that I might have felt or a feeling of exuberance, um, or love, or hope, or whatever the case may be. I mean, it, it really takes some some real introspection and some real craft, I think, to satisfy yourself that you've accurately portrayed the things that you're trying to portray. And so, instead of saying, "Well, this was a this had autobiographical elements," it I mean, it really it really doesn't. If you if you look at the the actual facts and things, the actual story that's told, none of these things happened to me uh, in my life. Um, necessarily, but I think that the emotions that are depicted uh, in the pages of this book, those things are all, are all very real to me on a very fundamental level. But you talk about in that same article about how your your father's reluctance at you writing a book was sort of echoed in Henry and his mother's relationship. And then you go on to talk about how you had some regrets about your own relationship with your daughter when she was growing up and, and how that has sort of filtered down into the relationship between the younger Henry and his sister Threnody. And I guess the theme, one of the themes of this book is how these patterns are repeated through the generations, isn't it? Yes, that, that's right. And, and that is something that, that's a phenomenon that, I, that I've observed within my own family. And it, it is interesting to see uh, history repeat itself in that way. And, and we don't, I don't think we like to think that we're susceptible to those sorts of things. For example, my, my father is, um, is an alcoholic and with, uh, who suffered from depression for years and years and years and years. And it's something that we deal with just about every day. Um, and, and in fact, he was, just, he was just in the hospital. He just got out of the hospital a couple of days ago. And, um, after, you know, for, he had to go back in for, for treatment for the alcoholism. And, and, uh, as soon as he was home again, he, he began drinking again. And, um, and it, it, five minutes before the phone, this phone call with you, I had heard that he has some, perhaps disappeared. No one knows where he's gone. And so, um, but it's this sort of a legacy that he has. And, and as, as a man and his son, I would. I tell myself that I'm surely not going to have issues with depression or alcoholism. I mean, you know how that is. Um, and of course, I have my. I have a daughter, who you know, you and I have talked about, who's now 28 years old. And what's alarming is when you start to see certain historical repetitions in yourself. But what's even more alarming is when you begin to see them with a child. And uh, I, I think that's a very powerful notion 
so that it there it was uh, very deliberate uh, on my part to try to fill in some of those lines between these characters uh, here in this book. Um, just one more thing for me then. I just wanted to talk about some other writers that have influenced you. As I said, this this book is so beautifully written, it does not read at all like a debut novel. You mentioned Poe. Who else has been an influence on this book? I, I tell you, um, I think just about everything I read influences me uh, in, in one way or another. Uh, I, I read all the time. I, 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 I love language, and so it's it's just about anything I read, I feel like I've take away just a little bit of, of some aspect of it. I love probably Thomas Wolfe more than any other writer, although, you know, he, he certainly had his own troubles with, you know, trying to be concise. He, 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 he wrote an incredible book called The Autobiography, or this is not a book that he wrote, but it's a, it's a book that contains two of his essays called The Autobiography of an American Novelist. And uh, these are uh, speeches that he gave. One was in 1935, I think. One was in 1937, where he talked about the writing process and how he he just wrote and wrote and wrote millions of words and and had a tremendous difficulty, you know, actually just sort of starting a story and having having some normal plot development and and concluding it. But nevertheless, the authenticity and the sincerity with which he with which he wrote um, have always been inspirational to me. But I love Faulkner and Tolkien and William Styron and David Mitchell. I, I think I've read every word that. You can you can find on David Mitchell, Fitzgerald, Camus, um, Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould, Evelyn Waugh, Mencken, H. L. Mencken, of course, Tennessee Williams, and but it just sort of de- you know it depends on the day, and um, but I, I find meaning in so 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 many books that uh, um, you could just about I mean I've got a little library in my house and you could pull a book off the shelf and I would say oh yes that one let me tell you what I loved about that. And when you do that, when you sit down to write, it's it's hard not to take uh, just a little piece of each one of those things with you. To finish it off then, could I get you to read a little piece of the Barrowfields for us? Oh, absolutely. All right, so where I'm going to read from is, um, this is a point at which Henry is eight years old, and he has been caught stealing books from the library. A year later, his library privileges were permanently revoked when it was discovered that he had, over the course of several months, removed more than a hundred books from the school library's repository of reading material. The heist was revealed when Maddie went in one day to change his sheets and nearly fractured her left foot on the spine of Brideshead Revisited. She threw back the bedclothes at once and discovered his literary plunder. The books were stacked in neat, alphabetical rows under the bed he shared with his brother, who had said nothing of the enterprise. And he had done all this without raising a modicum of suspicion from anyone, including the waspish librarian, Mrs. Tickborne, who preferred that no one check out books in the first place. An interrogation followed in the school's tiny detention room, where a large wooden paddle, marked with holes, hung ominously on the wall. "'What were you going to do with all those books?' asked Bent Smith, the school principal, who had threatened to expel the chronically bibliophilic boy. Mr. Smith was tall and thin like a young birch tree, but he had an awful curvature to his spine that made him half as tall as he might have been otherwise. As a boy, he'd been scalded with boiling water from a kettle that held the family's clothes he'd been assigned to wash. A wooden leg of the pot rotted and gave out. So he was spotted like a cow and part of his face was sallow, 
and one half, one half of his mouth was turned down, giving him a look of permanent and aggravated dyspepsia. Mr. Smith was conducting the examination. Mrs. Tickborn, who by all reports was blind as a cavefish from staring so many years at Melville Dewey's damnable taxonomic invention, stood anxiously at Mr. Smith's shoulder. She had a long history of discouraging students from reading, particularly with respect to books of more purient interest, like fiction, and had it been up to her, she would have summoned the State Bureau of Investigation and asked them to issue warrants. Unable to control herself any longer, she demanded to know what he was going to do with her books under his bed, and the very question implied an indecency about the whole affair. I plan to read them, said my father, who'd been positioned in a fraying, cane-backed chair in the middle of the room, with his inquisitors circling like a couple of buzzards. In fact, I've already read most of them. He began to explicate a detailed and heretofore unformulated hypothesis about the human mind's psychological readiness to read a given book at a given moment, and how important, nay, critical, it was to have the book one wanted to read at the absolute ready when the inspiration struck. The gist was that when you decide you want to read something, you want it handy so you can dive right in. His argument was not persuasive. He was just going to read them, Helton came to his son's defense, and just in time. It's not like he was going to sell them. Not exactly a market up here for books, you'll admit. You can't punish the boy for wanting to read. Yes, that's true, said Mr. Smith, but he could have read them just the same by checking them out one at a time. I've been talking to Philip Lewis. We've been talking about The Barrow Fields, which is out now in the UK from Scepter Books. Philip, thank you so much for sharing it with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 